welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick DeYoung, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This program started by our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, over 20 years ago. He did over a thousand programs pertaining to examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, we've had a lot of new questions lately asking us, with all that's going on in the world, how do we pick our stories that we cover? Well, Jimmy, we look at these stories with an eye on Bible prophecy. We are students of Bible prophecy, and as we look at what's going on in the world, we compare it to what the Bible says is going to take place in the end times, and so many things are setting the stage for these events to be fulfilled. And Jimmy, a lot of the stories that we're going to talk about today with our broadcast partners they are very scary stories, and they're not meant to bring fear, and that's not what we're doing here. We're doing it to compare it to Bible prophecy, but it is easy to be afraid, but we don't have to be afraid, do we? No, we sure don't. Rick, you know, and when we have a worldview, uh, when I say worldview, how we get our news, whether it be through Fox News or Newswatch or whatever program, CNN, uh, NBC, ABC, CBS, that's how you determine your worldview, what the media wants you to know. Now, people will notice that we don't always focus on the same stories that those media outlets do. Now, some of that is just normal stuff that's happening in your area and around your world and what you want to focus on. But we are focusing on Bible prophecy, Rick, and you said it so aptly correct. Sometimes it's scary. And today's program is going to focus on really how we can overcome fear of the end days. The best way to overcome fear of the end of days is to be spiritually prepared for it. Second, every Christian should live a life worthy of the calling we have in Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 4. Third, Christians are told what will happen in the end of days, and it's encouraging. And that's uh, what we're going to focus on today, Rick, with our legacy series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We have the privilege of being able to carry on and play our legacy series today. He's going to be focusing on the beginning, keys to help you to understand Bible prophecy, and he's studying the book of Revelation on the program today. We have our normal partners, Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, and of course, Winky Madad will be back with us this week. There's a lot going on because we focus on the Jew and the city of Jerusalem. So on today's program, we've got a lot to cover, Rick. And as always, we got to get started. Let's get started with our first, Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. We have our geopolitical expert with us today, Ken Timmerman. He is a man with lots of experience. He's an author, an analyst. He's written a book, a memoir that I think is really interesting. You might really like to read it. The name of the book is And the Rest is History. And you can find out more about that and the other books that he's written by going to Ken Timmerman.com. Ken, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Rick, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Well, Ken, we're going to go all over the globe today, but we'll start off in the Russia-Ukraine theater. And the U.S. has sent another package of military aid to Ukraine. Now, this one is not necessarily the dollar figure, but actually the type of ammunition that they're sending that is most controversial. That's right. First, there were cluster munitions, which have been banned worldwide. And now it's depleted uranium tank munitions, uh, otherwise known as DU. Now, these are used by the United States. We use them in the both Gulf Wars against Iraq. 
And what they do is they they really increase the firepower of our Abrams tanks. They um, are sending them to Ukraine because the Ukrainians have had problems going after Russian tanks. And I think the rationale here is that these depleted uranium munitions uh, will basically turn out to be tank killers. Well, Ken, as we look at this situation, the Ukraine crisis and Russia's territorial dispute, their invasion of Ukraine is really reshaping global politics. And I think that's the real story coming out of this situation. We look at it and we're going to look at how this is affecting other areas of the world. And we'll start with the European Union. Looks like they are planning for a post-Ukraine crisis world and they are wanting to increase their military scope. This has been a problem for many years, Rick. It's been a problem within NATO. And, uh, you know, the French for well over a decade had been trying to convince their European partners inside the European Union, not NATO, to form a European rapid reaction force. Nobody has ever agreed to it. And none of the large countries, except for Poland, is spending over the NATO goal of 2% of GDP on its defense. So these new budget rules that the EU are, are now contemplating, they would allow countries to spend more on their defense budgets to increase defense spending without uh, violating the EU rules, which set a limit of a 3% budget deficit. We've gone way past that in the United States and a uh, national debt of 60% of GDP. And again, by comparison, the US national debt is uh, well over 100% of GDP, but would allow the European countries to spend more on defense and not have it count towards those limits. The EU is also up in arms about this Russian blockade of Ukraine ports, and they are looking to Turkey, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but they're looking at Turkey's Erdogan to solve this situation, basically relying on his relationship with Vladimir Putin. And Erdogan is uh, really making quite some headway. Uh, but this past week, you had the president of European Council, uh, Charles Michel, a Belgian, who said Russia must stop its grain blockade. And I kind of listened to this. And remember, Rick, that uh, Belgium uh, is noteworthy for having given a great gift to the art of diplomacy. That is the waffle. So here you have uh, Michel, President Michel of the European Council, telling Russia it must stop. And you want to kind of say, and or else, or else what? We might hit you with a waffle. Going back to Erdogan, he has made quite a bit of progress with the Russians recently. He's been talking to Putin, but he's also, as always, he's pretending to play both sides. You had Erdogan recently host Zelensky in Istanbul, where he quite notably and quite publicly told him that Ukraine's place is in NATO. So at the same time he's talking to Putin, he's talking to Zelensky, and the Russians are not taking this uh, lying down. They have sent a couple of very, very pointed uh, reminders to Erdogan that he'd better not cozy up to the Ukrainians too much. Uh, they had a they, they launched a, a missile strike uh, just recently on a plant in Ukraine, the Motorsik plant. It's a, an important engine manufacturer used by the Turkish Air Force. They use it for engines, for their helicopters and some of their other aircraft. Uh, so they blew up that plant, really disrupting the Turkish aerospace business. And then they launched a strike in Syrian Kurdistan that killed six Turkish soldiers. So I think you're going to have uh, Erdogan in the next week to 10 days suddenly become very accommodating, very helpful to Putin. They want to negotiate a new deal to get Ukrainian grain to world markets. 
This at the same time as the U.S., uh, in particular the uh, DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, has issued a, an eight-page report basically accusing Putin of creating a world food crisis. Well, as we look at the situation as it relates to Erdogan and and where he stands, it certainly seems, and I think I'm confirming what you're saying, that he is straddling both sides of the fence in this situation. He will cozy up to Putin when that works for him, and uh, then he will, like you said, charm the West if that's possible. But we need to remember where he comes from. He's basically an authoritarian, possibly even a dictator there, even though he has been elected, and he's also an Islamicist. So we just kind of need to remember that as we deal with Erdogan in the future, don't we? Uh, well, absolutely. And you, the last point is the most important. He is an Islamist, and he believes that Turkey is the center of the new worldwide caliphate. Uh, so Erdogan will choose his allies where he needs them. Uh, for right now, he is trying to play both sides between Russia and Turkey. But my bets are on that long-term relationship with Russia. Well, as I said, the Ukraine crisis and Russia's aggression there is continuing to reshape world politics and driving Russia to create new allies and strengthen already existing allies. One of those is North Korea's Kim Jong-un, who has been making noise, nuclear noise there in North Korea. This is a relationship that we really need to keep an eye on, isn't it? Uh, we absolutely need to keep an eye on this. Putin is going to be meeting with Kim uh, in the very near future. I'm not sure that a date has been set, but they are going to be meeting uh, very soon. And the Russians want weapons from uh, Kim. He still has a Cold War era ability to churn out huge quantities of artillery munitions uh, and artillery rockets. Russia needs those to resupply its troops in Ukraine. And Kim from Russia wants more sophisticated weapons and advanced military technology. Just this past week, Rick, Kim took part in a ceremony launching a new naval nuclear attack submarine. This is a brand new development. It's something that even the U.S. intelligence establishment has not been talking about a great deal. They are developing nuclear-tipped cruise missiles and nuclear-tipped naval drones. If these things are true, Rick, uh, that's a real game changer. Up until now, we've been talking about a nuclear-armed North Korea with ICBMs capable of reaching the United States, but not uh, nuclear submarines and not these nuclear-tipped cruise missiles or naval drones. Those could completely change the balance of power on the Korean Peninsula, Rick. And this is truly bad news for the U.S. and its allies. It certainly seems like that's a situation that we need to keep an eye on. I mean, that is an offensive weapon, isn't it? Uh, that's one way of putting it. Uh, those are offensive weapons. They would wipe out an entire flotilla of U.S. ships come to resupply South Korea, as we did at the beginning of the Korean War in the 1950s. Uh, oh, yes, uh, those are extremely offensive weapons. Well, again, these nations that we focus on, Ukraine, Russia, Turkey, they're all a part of an alignment of nations that will come against Israel. When we look at the nations of the Far East, which would be North Korea adding these weapons, those are the kings out of the East. I believe North Korea, along with China, India, these nations will come against Israel. And that's Revelation chapter 16, verse 12, the kings out of the East. Well, let's take a break and we'll come back. We've got another question to ask you about Iran right here on Prophecy Today Weekend.
I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. A regional mediator and Gabon's new military ruler agree to create a plan for restoring democratic rule following last week's coup. No other details have emerged yet, but a West African financial executive says Gabon's August 30th military takeover was a good coup. It was the eighth rebellion in West and Central Africa since 2020. Pray for continued peace and stability in the region. Peace allows world mission partners to distribute audio Bibles and start listening groups. Meanwhile, a record-breaking pair of earthquakes shook Turkey and Syria in February, killing thousands and displacing millions. Today, many survivors are showing an increased need for mental health support. Fadi Sharia from the MENA Leadership Center spoke with us about how MLC provided psychological first aid training to Christian leaders in the region. The training helps Syrian believers start to process years of trauma. You can find your place in this story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., along with Rick and Ken Timmerman. We are examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. David Dolan's coming up in one moment, but we had one more question for Ken about Iran. With all the sanctions from the West, it seems like Iran is being pushed into the arms of Russia, and that relationship is growing, isn't it, Ken? It does indeed, and and you and I have talked about this many times on this show. In, in fact, we have been tracking this Iran-Russia relationship for a number of years. What I found interesting this past week, Rick, was a new report from the European Council on Foreign Relations. This is kind of the establishment group that looks at and analyzes foreign affairs, just like the U.S. Council on Foreign uh, Relations does here. And they talked about the, quote, steadily deepening ties between Iran and Russia. And I've got to say, after all of these years of being lone voices out in the wilderness talking about Russia and Iran, it is a little bit heartening to see that the establishment is finally picking this up. And this notion of the Iran-Russia alliance has become mainstream. It certainly is. And we have, like you said, been talking about that for quite some time, even with my father, uh, the late Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. You talked about it with him often. Well, we continue uh, talking about Iran here. And there's some reports out this week that there may be an organized effort on the part of Iran to spread their religious influence throughout the United States through mosque and different type of cultural initiatives. This is something that we should be very wary of, isn't it? Uh, it's something that's been going on for some time, but uh, recently you had a group of nine U.S. representatives sending a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland warning about this and citing in detail some of the information that I have put out in reports uh, in the past about these Iranian-funded mosques 
all across the U.S. You have them in Potomac, Maryland, in the Washington, D.C. area. There's another one in Houston, Texas. There's two of them in New York City. And they are either owned or controlled by the Alavi Foundation, which is an Iranian government organization controlled directly by the supreme leader of Iran. And uh, for years, they were getting their money in this country from a 35-story skyscraper built by the Shah on Fifth Avenue. Well, litigation that I've been involved with on behalf of 9-11 victims is taking that skyscraper away from them. They are going to lose that source of income to spread their malign influence here in the United States. It's not yet a done deal, but all of the courts have ruled in our favor and the Iranians can no longer use that money. So they've got the mosques, they've got these Islamic education centers, and uh, nine U.S. representatives are asking the attorney general to crack down on this because they are foreign terror centers or at the very least foreign intelligence centers. I haven't seen the DOJ doing much about it, and I kind of doubt that Merrick Garland is going to take action. Well, it's concerning, and this is not, just to be clear, this is not a freedom of religion issue. We're not, we have constitutional freedom to practice whatever religion we want to here in the United States, but this particular type of religion, and this is a stated goal of the Ayatollahs in Iran, is not to tolerate and coexist with other religions. This is to replace all other religions. Isn't that true? Well, uh, that is certainly true when it comes to Islam in general, Rick, but even more uh, damning here, uh, these should not be considered mosques. These should be considered military intelligence operational centers of the Islamic Republic of Iran, because that's what they are. They're foreign outposts of the Islamic regime here in the United States to infiltrate the Iranian community, to control the Iranian community, and eventually to support operational tasks of the Iranian government. By the way, they have been deeply involved in cyber attacks in the United States recently. There was there have been a number of reports from Microsoft and others about Iranian cyber efforts. So these mosques should not be considered religious establishments. They are foreign bases of the Iranian regime. Certainly an area where we need to maintain our vigilance and we need to talk about it like we're doing on this program. Well, that's exactly what we do. We have you on the program to share what's going on around the world and to educate our listeners on these subjects. Thank you for all that you do, Ken, and we look forward to hearing from you again soon. Thanks so much, Rick. God bless. Rick, you know, if we didn't know the end of the story and with the advantage of having Bible prophecy, we do know the end of the story. This would be a scary world that we live in. Well, one of the keys to understanding Bible prophecy is to focus on the Jewish people. And to help us do that, as always, we have our established broadcast partner, David Dolan. Well, David, we'll start with this Saudi peace deal. This week, we heard from the Palestinians what it will take for them to give their blessing to this deal. Could you tell us what the status of this deal is? Well, Rick, the two top senior aides to the PA leader, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, flew to Saudi Arabia during the week and met with their counterparts, the head of national security in Saudi Arabia and and similar things, to discuss this ongoing U.S.-sponsored reconciliation deal that's been reported widely in the newspapers in the Middle East and in America and elsewhere that will apparently involve the Saudis are asking at least for a 
civilian nuclear program that the U.S. would sponsor and help them with. They want security guarantees from the United States if they're attacked by Iran or anybody else. And they want access to higher-level U.S. military equipment. Uh, there's been uh, a lot of sales over the years, but some of the best U.S. equipment has been withheld from them, and they want that released. Well, the Palestinians have gotten in the middle of this. We discussed last week some of that, that the Saudis are offering to become their protectors in a sense and move Jordan out of controlling the Temple Mount, the Al-Aqsa Mosque there, and they want to take that basically into their own hands. Some other things that are controversial in Israel, but the Palestinians want basically to use these talks to get Israel to do several things they've been uh, demanding for some time. They want further Israeli pullouts from Area C. That's the 60% of Judea and Samaria that's under exclusive Israeli control. The Palestinians control most of the rest of the land, either exclusively or they share security control in some areas. They want uh, that Israeli presence reduced. They want a halt to all Israeli settlement expansion, as they call it, i.e. any more apartments even in existing communities, wouldn't be allowed to be built under this uh, demand, and several other things that the Israelis are, say the least, not at all enthusiastic about. But Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister, again reiterated that they hope that normalization can take place with the Saudis. That's in Israel's interest. And as I've said several times, they already have pretty good on-the-ground relations behind the scenes, quiet relations between the two countries. But this would formalize that. And, of course, Joe Biden, running for president again, would love a major foreign policy victory. Of course, his first foreign policy decision was a disaster, the Afghan withdrawal and the way it was carried out. And ever since then, his poll ratings on foreign affairs have been very, very low. So he would see this as a political victory. Uh, but again, some Democrats in his own party are opposed to this. They point out the continuing human rights violations in Saudi Arabia. They continue to point out support for 9-11 amongst segments of the Saudi ruling royal family and other things such as that. And again, some Republicans are not very happy about it because of the demands the Palestinians are now making as part of this. So whether it will actually go anywhere, Rick, we just don't know. But it is being discussed in the newspapers and amongst the politicians. Jake Sullivan, the U.S. National Security Advisor, said nothing is ready yet. Everybody calm down a bit. It's not about to be announced. So uh, that seems to be where we're at. There was a story coming out in the news this week that Prime Minister Netanyahu is so committed to getting this normalization deal through that he would be prepared to quit the government. Is there any validity to that? Well, that was from a ultra-Orthodox newspaper, Rick, that is connected to the current government, certainly. There are ultra-Orthodox parties, two of them, in the government. But the Likud party, the ruling Likud party, the main one, denied that. They said there's no truth to this. This is a fabrication and an illusion. Netanyahu will continue to be prime minister, continue to run the country, and wants this Saudi deal to go through. And there's no reason he should have to step aside, um, you know, for it to go through. And in fact, uh, the Likud leaders made clear that if that were a Saudi demand, because, of course, they're not directly talking to the Saudis, the Americans are, if that has come up, 
and or if the Palestinians demand it, then the whole thing is off as far as Israel's concerned. And I should add that the Palestinians want the reopening of their consulate to serve just Arabs in East Jerusalem. The White House apparently replied to that demand saying, well, the Israelis have to have a say in whether a consulate is opened in their capital city. All countries have that say when it comes to such things. So they said that's probably a non-starter. Well, David, I think that's very interesting because the White House at least recognizes that Jerusalem is the rightful capital of the Jewish people. Again, let me remind you, passages that we're talking about here in Scripture, Psalm 83, the Saudi Arabia Accord Agreement that took place, and Ezekiel 37, the prophecy of the two sticks, the religious right and the liberal left in Israel. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we've got more questions to ask you, Dave, if you'd stick around. We want to follow up on the Palestinian question, and then uh, we have Winky Badad coming in to help us more understand what's going on in Israel. We'll take a break, and we'll be right back, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. This is our Middle East news update, and with us, as we usually have, we have Dave Dolan. Now, he's a journalist, spent 30 years in Israel. Last couple of weeks, he was updating us on the four major trends, which was very interesting to listen to. Now, he's back on our Middle East news update. Thanks for joining us, as always, David. Blessed to do it, Rick. Well, you talked a little bit about the Palestinian demands there, and it almost looks like they have maybe potentially veto power for this deal to go through. But the Palestinian Authority has been in the news themselves this week. Their leader, Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, said some very controversial things. He did, Rick. It was actually in a speech he gave last month uh, in Ramallah to his uh, Revolutionary Council, his Fatah Party leaders, and he made it in Arabic, of course, and a translation in English was published this week. And when that came out, condemnations began all over the place. In fact, Rick, the strongest denunciation of such a statement from the European Union that I've seen in many decades even was issued. They called his comments deeply offensive, that they can only serve to exacerbate tensions in the region. They serve no one's interests. They're inflammatory. They distort history and some other things. 
And what he basically said, as he said before, and I should point out that when he was in university, his thesis was on the Holocaust and denying the Holocaust, essentially, and saying some ridiculous things. And in this speech, this latest speech, he said that Hitler only went after the Jews because they were money lenders and they were charging interest on their loans. And he didn't like that. And the other Europeans didn't like that. So that's why so many backed the elimination of the Jewish people from Europe. He said most Israeli Ashkenazi Jews are not actually Semitic in their background. They are not actually Jewish. Uh, they were converts to Judaism in the 8th century in Khazaria. Now, that was in northern Turkey. And it is true that the leader there converted to Judaism and issued a proclamation to his people, who were a Turkic people, to also convert to Judaism, and many did. So those people don't have actual Middle Eastern Semitic background, but Jews from all over Europe then flocked to Khazaria because it was a safe haven. And many came from Spain and Italy and Greece and to the north in Germany, Poland. And uh, they settled there and they intermarried with these Khazari Jews. And so pretty much all of the uh, Russian Jews that came in the 90s and the late uh, Yasser Arafat used to talk about this all the time. Almost all of them have actual Jewish uh, physical background. And the DNA testing can prove that today. But it's also been pointed out that a convert to Judaism, whatever their ethnic background, is considered a full Jew. So, again, it's just he's bringing up these ridiculous things. Of course, last year at a news conference with the German chancellor, he said the Israelis are carrying out massacres every day. He said we've had 50 massacres and 50 holocausts in our own country in recent years. Um, so, uh, and the German chancellor later said he was disgusted by these outrageous remarks, etc. So Abbas goes on and talks like he talks, but as the EU statement pointed out, this doesn't help his contention that there should be a two-state solution, peace solution with Israel. How can the Israelis negotiate with a man that talks like this and that, and that thinks like this? And again, this was broadcast in Arabic on PA state television, so all of the Palestinians and saw it, heard it, and it is echoed, I know, from talking to them all the time on the street. Well, it does certainly call into question their ability to be a peace partner. Well, two more quick stories I'd like to get you to talk about, if you could. President Biden named a new ambassador to Israel. Can you tell us about that? Yes, Tom Nides resigned, the current ambassador, and the White House announced on Tuesday that Jacob Liu, L-E-W, would uh, take over as ambassador. The Israelis immediately issued very favorable statements. The foreign minister saying he's a good friend of Israel. We know him well. The interesting thing is he will be the third ever Orthodox Jew to represent the United States in Israel. He's a practicing Jew, Jacob Liu is. He was finance minister under Barack Obama. Uh, he had several other senior government positions under Obama and Bill Clinton and is very involved in Jewish causes in the United States. He supports the Israeli library system with fundraisers and different things like that. So uh, the Israelis are, are very glad to see him coming. Tom Nidis was a bit on the edge sometimes. He was pro-Israel, but not nearly so much as David Friedman, the previous ambassador under Trump, who was also an Orthodox Jew. So they're welcoming Jacob Lou. And of course, he just has to get approved by the Senate, which should be no problem. 
One final story, David, that I thought was very interesting, an archaeological find in the area around the Dead Sea. Can you tell us about that? Yes, it was an echo of the great finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948. Some archaeologists went to a certain cave that they'd been in before, and they took advanced uh, photography equipment because there was some ancient Hebrew lettering on one of the stalactites in this deep cave, and they went to photograph that. And while they were doing so, they noticed something sticking out of a rock nearby, just a tiny portion of it, the camera picked it up, and it was the edge of a sword. Well, it turned out to be four Roman swords, three of them 25 inches long, the other a little bit shorter. Three of them were also, their blades were intact fully. They were inside the scabbards that were still good, and there was leather and wood there that was still good. Now, that's only possible, as you know, in an environment like uh, near the Dead Sea, uh, very, very dry, hardly any moisture, uh, very constant temperatures in those caves over the centuries. But it was believed that these were stolen by uh, Jewish revolters in the Bar Kokhba revolt of 132 to 135. Of course, Masada took place uh, at that time, uh, famously captured in films, etc. And they were thought to probably have been hidden by these uh, Jews in this uh, crevice, this uh, fissure in the rock. And they were pulled out, great shape, uh, photographed. And the archaeologist said it was one of the greatest finds uh, in uh, modern times in the Holy Land. And, of course, it also once again confirms the Jews were there, the Romans were there, the Romans destroyed the Jewish state. Again, things that Abbas and Yasser Arafat and others have denied. Well, very interesting, David, and it's it's interesting that you bring up the relation to the Dead Sea Scrolls found in the same area, one of those incidents that happening right around the same time as the creation of the state of Israel kind of looks like God putting his stamp of approval on that event taking place. Well, David, as always, thanks for all you do to keep our listeners informed. We look forward to talking to you again soon. You're very welcome, Rick. God bless. Thanks, David. And Rick, as always, it's interesting to me how uh, archaeology, which is an evolving science, it's always being uncovered, always confirms what we know to be true, the confirming of God's word. Well, let's dig a little bit deeper in Israel. And you suggested to me that we bring Wiki Madad back in to go a little bit deeper this week on what is happening in Israel. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have Winky Madad with us. He's coming to us from Israel. He's the former mayor of Shiloh and a frequent contributor to Prophecy Today. Winky, thank you for joining us again. Thank you very much once again for having me on. Well, Winky, we always use you to help explain to us what is going on in Israeli politics. Right now, Israeli politics is dominated, well, by lots of different things, but especially by this overhaul. There's been some developments this week. Can you tell us where it stands right now? Well, um, we're getting ready for the next week or two in which, if I'm not mistaken, there'll be three different cases in which the government and the Knesset have either decided or made it or made a move, shall I call it that way, and there have been appeals from the public, not only that, but the government's own legal advisor has said she will not defend those moves in the court, uh, which is basically, if you want to look at it a little bit dramatically, setting the stage for a uh, almost a major confrontation between the Supreme Court that I have 
tried to explain over the past year or so has overextended its reach without consensus, without decision-making, without any constitutional assembly. If I want to you know, recall the American example 200 odd years ago, or any sort of dialogue. I explained it back in the 1990s, early 1990s, Professor Aaron Barak, then head of the Supreme Court, took advantage of laws that were passed to make an overarching grab for a power of the Supreme Court to decide what to do, especially in terms of legislation, when it's not clear if it can do those things. And one of the issues, uh, we call it here incapability. In other words, uh, what happens if the prime minister is incapable of doing his work? Okay, now almost everywhere in the world, in fact, I think everywhere in the world, everybody understands that to mean either a medical condition or psychological condition. In other words, if he's sick or a a psychologist, a a medical person says, listen, the guy's lost his mind, you know, or he's blabbering, he's incapable of of doing that. And so the, the, the Knesset passed the law saying it's only dealing with medical issues it needs a certain amount of majority of the government, a certain amount of majority of the Knesset, if the Knesset wants to do it instead. And people have, appear, have appealed. Now, to try to explain the, the sensitivity of this, and it's, it's going to take about another minute and a half, and then I'll, we can continue, is a lot of people are suspecting that the court might say, well, since Mr. Netanyahu was under trial in three different cases, we think it's most proper for him to resign from his position until those cases are over, which it has done previously as regards, for example, ministers or members of Knesset. And so everybody suspects that's one way of getting rid of Mr. Netanyahu, who's consistently won elections or squared off on them. And that's raised a lot of people's anger and concern that the Supreme Court would substitute itself for the ballot box, for the voting. Again, the biggest personality in the situation right now is Prime Minister Netanyahu. This seems to be dominating his administration, what he's doing right now. I know he's a proponent of judicial overhaul, but I know that there are those in his government that are even harder line for this judicial overhaul, uh, he would probably rather focus on the Saudi normalization talks because that's something he might see as his legacy. Do you think that's the case? Absolutely. In fact, we know by reports that he has consistently made overtures, both public and private, to the opposition, mainly to Mr. Gantz and Mr. Lapid from the two different major opposition parties to meet and to dialogue and to connect and to see what happened. And they're, of course, plain politics. They keep on saying, well, we don't trust you. Well, you're not going to get anywhere if you say we don't trust you, right? We would get somewhere because that's what politics is. Anybody who knows politics knows that uh, eventually you're going to have to sit in a small smoke-filled room and work out a compromise one way or the other or to go to a vote. In America, you have a good democracy, and when you win a vote, that's it, okay? In Israel, what basically happened, I think, to add to one of the points you raised, is that the opposition unexpectedly lost the last election. Not only did they lose the last election, 
But all the right-wing or right-of-center parties, I should properly say, because of varying degrees, all gained votes. And, and after four elections where nothing was going anywhere, all of a sudden Netanyahu has 64 seats to back him. That, that blew them away. They were, I think they're suffering from a psychological, uh, some sort of imbalance between you and me, and that's what set off the streets because they realized that, you know, they're not the majority, that the religious, semi-religious, traditional, and right-wing parties happen to have the majority in the Knesset, and they're on the outs. That's, you know, shocking. <laughs> well, it certainly is. And for those that are trying to get a, dig a little bit deeper into understanding the situation, because as, as I admitted before, it is, is very complicated, if you go to jns.org, Winky has got an article. It's under Yisrael Madad. It's an opinion piece, but basically you're saying in that opinion piece, and you've alluded to it before, that you have kind of an elite group of people, the liberal, if you will, I don't know, you can clarify that if that's incorrect, but kind of this elite group that have typically had ruling power. Now it's moving more to what people might consider right, definitely more to the religious. So that is, there is this divide uh, in the Israeli body politic, and it certainly seems like even though they're not in the majority, they are. This is their grasp, their clawing to hold on to the power, which might not be in line with what the uh, the majority of people in Israel think. Well, yes. Uh, thank you for the recommendation. In short, you had from the 1930s into the 1980s. Okay, 1977, you can say is a cutoff date, but it's extended a little bit longer. You had Ashkenazi secular semi-socialists, shall we call them, pioneers who built Israel. And they got into positions of influence in the trade union, what we call the histadrut, in the army, uh, in academia, and in culture and the media for, for, for decades. And the children grew up privileged to a certain extent. They also went into the army. And that's why you see, for example, if anybody is watching this thing, I don't know, Right. You see a group of people anywhere between, I'm going to guess, 50, 55 to 70 as the majority of the people marching. And, and if you watch carefully, that's the age group. In other words, they are people who have enjoyed early pension from either uh, defense industry uh, works or the army itself. And they have now time on their hands and they feel threatened socially, economically and politically. And that's what's driving, I think, in my opinion, a lot of the demonstrations and a lot of the demonstrators. And uh, when people are threatened, I'm not talking about physically threatened, but in terms of their own self-value and, and financial and their status and, and their role in society, uh, they get very upset. And I think that's, that's one of the things, and in any case, that's really playing out here, in, in my opinion. Well, so many facets, but there's a few more stories that I want to get your comment on, and these are all interrelated. They're all playing out against the backdrop of Israeli politics and this judicial overhaul. And really the other big story going on in Israel right now, the talks with uh, Saudi Arabia to normalize peace. The U.S. is pushing that very hard. 
But there was a story that came out this week. Thomas Friedman, one of the persons that you said, a journalist that you said is the de facto uh, policy director of uh, President Biden. But he's come out and said that this government and Prime Minister Netanyahu is, quote unquote, not normal. And he says that President Biden should not push this normalization deal because it would give a win to Prime Minister Netanyahu. Is, have I characterized that correctly? And is that not unbelievable? Uh, a, you've done so well. And of course, it is unbelievable. Here you have a person, and I, I don't even, I'm not even embarrassed enough not to say it on your program, a Jewish fellow, right, who's so caught up in his anti-Netanyahu psychosis, okay, that he, after the Abraham Accords, which have proven to be a boon of economy, exchange, tourism, academic, medical, scientific, I can't even find the end of that list that that I'm rolling off, to say that something might click with Saudi Arabia, or, or even to pursue it, even if nothing 100% happens, and to say, don't do that because something's wrong with Netanyahu is really something wrong with Mr. Friedman. I know why. I mean, not everybody knows. I might have mentioned it in one of our previous interviews. Mr. Thomas Friedman, when he was a university student at Brandeis University back in the late 1970s, was an extreme anti-Zionist leftist activist. He was a supporter of one of the most vicious anti-Israel groups at that time called Brera. And I think a lot of his animosity stems from a deep ideological rut he's in, which is very dangerous. Because it's one thing to be a newspaper columnist and an opinion writer and an editor of sorts and stuff like that. You know, going around the world and meeting people and saying, oh, hi. Uh, stuff like that, uh, to be so deeply embedded in his own either self-importance, which happens sometimes, or his ideological, political uh, dreaming, which colors his ability to look at events objectively. Uh, and I, I think I, I try to be fair on your program. Every time I give a, my own opinion, I try to make it clear. And I, on the other hand, if they're facts, I say they are facts and you can check me out. I don't think Mr. Friedman knows the difference between the two. Well, it is very important, and we talked about that on this program recently, where you get your news from, know what the biases are. Uh, this is kind of a, uh, a buyer beware when you're looking at Thomas Friedman thoughts. Uh, I'm glad that you've given us this context and background as to where they come from. Well, uh, we'll move on. And uh, I've got another place. I know you do uh, work for a lot of different places. Another website called TheMediaLine.org. And you wrote an article, an opinion piece there from January of this year that seems to be coming into play again. We talked about it last week. One of the things about this Saudi normalization deal is that possibly they could take over control of the Temple Mount. Right now, that's supposed to be controlled by Jordan. And that is something that you have talked about. You wrote an article, an opinion piece about that. I think basically saying that Saudi Arabia couldn't do any worse than Jordan is doing right now. But could you tell us, is that idea something that maybe its time has come? And do you think that would be a positive or a negative? Look, there's always a danger uh, that in talking with a Muslim country, it could go worse. I'm always aware of that. Uh, however, on the other hand, 
I have, and, and as, as you mentioned to our listeners, I do have a little bit of a political background. There's also the opportunity that once you speak to another Muslim country, you can have the possibility of opening up the situation a little bit more. For example, saying to Saudi Arabia, first of all, the mosque is the Alaska mosque, Al-Aqsa mosque. Okay, it's not the entire compound of the Temple Mount. And your authority extends to here, here, and here. Uh, but Jews also have a, uh, a right to do this, this, and that. You know, open up the, pa- the package again. Tell Jordan you weren't very uh, amenable to our conditions, and now we have a new partner. And, and they're the uh, custodians of Mecca and Medina. They're up on you, Mr. Uh, Abdullah, King of Jordan. So why not try to shake up things a little bit? I'm not in, not, not in favor of trying to see what the possibilities are. Uh, we can always say no. We can always say, well, we tried, but uh, Saudi Arabia is worse than Jordan, and they won't agree to this, they won't agree to that. But talk, engage, negotiate. On, on your program, for what, for 20 years now or more, right, I've always said I'm not against talking to any of the Arabs living in Judea and Samaria. It depends what you finalize with them and what the agreements are, but not, not to talk is unacceptable to me. And the same thing goes with Saudi Arabia. Be careful, but talk. Very interesting. The thought of uh, the prospect of a reset on the situation there in the Temple Mountain. This could be an opportunity for that. Well, I would be remiss. I wanted to ask you one more question. I, in this previous half hour, we talked with Dave Dolan, and he, he reported on the really anti-Semitic and despicable remarks, Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority. Now, if you'd like to comment a little bit on the remarks, that would be fine. But the question that I wanted to get from you as an Israeli citizen, as somebody who's going to have a vote and influence in this situation, the de facto American policy and even the European Union policy, all these different policies, is what they call a two-state solution, meaning Israel and is one state, and the Palestinians getting their own state. Well, this is your peace partner. This is the head of the Palestinian Authority for 20-plus years now. And uh, can you just tell me your thoughts about this kind of dialogue and what is supposed to be your peace partner? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I mean, I've never trusted Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, His doctorate, and you can look it up on Google, right, is, is basically the same stuff he repeated earlier this week, which is uh, revisionist Holocaust history. Uh, Jews and Zionism were responsible for the Holocaust, etc., etc., and the numbers of Jews that were killed were way less than uh, a million, uh, rather than even close to six million, etc., etc. Now, on, on the level you asked me the question, of course, can you trust them, is, of course, no. And I've never, I personally have never trusted him. And a lot of my fellow friends, neighbors, and political uh, allies have have said the same thing. But here you have it in black and white or on the screen, right? You can go on probably about a dozen sites now and listen for even maybe three or four minutes before you realize this guy's raving, stalking mad. And if he's not mad, he's one of the most evil people we have uh, in terms of uh, the Jewish state of Israel. Uh, but the point I want to make uh, a little bit deeper, if I can, 
this guy basically for the past 30 years has been at the head of the educational system of the Palestinian Authority. Now, what do you expect the Palestinian Authority population has been given in their educational, television, media, networks, outlets, whatever you want to call them, over the past 30 years? Mm. From the mosques, the, the, the preachers, what do you think they've been preaching? They've been preaching, seeing things quite similar. You go on to Palestine Media, Media Watch of Itamar Marcus, and it's all there for years and years and years. All the quotations, all the anti-Semitism, all the nastiness, all the, the bad things. And people still expected us not only to accept the two-state solution, but to do it with this guy, who's been in office, what, 17, 18 years now without an election. You know, if you want democracy, why don't you get it done for the Palestinian Authority? Is something I would say. Well, I think anybody with an open mind reviewing the material would see that the United States or Europe is crazy if it wants to push Israel to make a peace deal with this guy unless something dramatic happens, which I don't think will happen. Because he made a speech similar to this, what, about less than a year ago when he talked about 50 holocausts that the uh, Arabs of Palestine underwent, and, and the Jews only had one. I mean, I mean... It's more than ridiculous, and I'm I'm very sorry that we even have to discuss this. Well, Winky, as always, you bring uh, context to the conversations. You put news in perspective for us. We appreciate your opinion. We appreciate your insight into these situations. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me and to educate our listeners. Stay safe, Winky, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Again, thank you very much for having me on, and goodbye to you and our listeners. Great job as always, Winky. Rick, thanks for asking the tough questions. Tough one. Well, we got to take a break, and when we come back, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, we have a website where people can go if they want to follow us, uh, and there are many things that they can look at on our website. Certainly are, Jimmy. You can get uh, archived programs there if you miss any part of the program, and you could look at past programs as well. We have a bookstore. In that bookstore, you could find books, CD series, uh, DVDs, documentaries, different things like that that could help you in your study of Bible prophecy. And then, Jimmy, this program is supported by our listeners. So if you appreciate this program and you would like to support us, of course, we always covet your prayers, but we appreciate your support as well. You're exactly right, Rick. Prophecytoday.com is our website. Please make sure that you go there, take a look at it, see if there are some resources there that can help you, and we do covet your prayers. Well, the Legacy Series this week, we're beginning a study that will answer the question, when is the end of the world? Seems to be the question that's on everybody's mind, and in the fear that most people especially believers, live in in these end of days, this will help you in understanding that. When is the end of the world? There has been much talk recently about the end of the world as Christians. This week, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung will give you some keys to approaching your study of Revelation. John the Apostle lays out for us the three main events in the future with the details of what will happen in between these major events. 
Please take your Bible right now and let's go to Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 to begin our study in our legacy series with Dr. Jimmy D. Young. All the prophetic passages culminate. Every theme that you see in prophecy, any place in the Word of God, culminates with the book of Revelation. It brings us to the end of this world and then the entrance into eternity future. And so Revelation is a must study. And don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of going in and looking at the book. Let me give you a couple of hints as you start to look at the book. And then we'll look at a couple of points inside the book of Revelation. First of all, the title of the book is found in chapter 1 and verse 1. I don't know what the title in the particular translation you have. I have a King James translation and the title of the book says the revelation of St. John the Divine, which is not the title of the book. Revelation is not revelation of St. John and he was not divine. He was a saint because he came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, uh, but he was not divine. He was not a God. And he was just the author of the book because he got that information from an angel. Chapter 1, verse 1 gives the title of the book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the title of the book. The book of Revelation lifts up Jesus Christ. Chapter 19 and verse 10. Jesus Christ is the spirit of all prophecy. Jesus Christ. So this book lifts up. Jesus Christ. And we need to continually understand that is the case. It's lifting up Jesus Christ. I have a sign here on the pulpit right in front of me from John chapter 12 and verse 21. And it says, we would see Jesus. Very important exhortation for all of us who stand behind this sacred desk. But the book of Revelation helps us to see Jesus revealed in his person, in his power, and in his program that he is laying out. The title of the book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, by the way, verse 1 tells us where it came from. From God the Father who gave it to Jesus Christ, who gave it to him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he, Jesus Christ, sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. The most used word in the book of Revelation is angel or angels. It's plural. And they play a key role in the second coming of Christ as they did in the first coming of Jesus Christ as well. In chapter one, we see that Jesus Christ, who had a great testimony, his testimony of coming to know Christ as Lord and Savior. He was known as the beloved disciple. He, at this time in his life, was probably in his early 90s, having been born uh, soon after the birth of Jesus Christ. They were contemporaries. Jesus was born in 4 BC uh, before Herod died. And then we see that indeed John probably came along maybe within 10 years. So he would have been somewhat Uh, about the same age of Christ, maybe 10 years younger. Even at that, he would probably be in his between 85 and 95 years of age when he wrote the book. And he's a pastor of a church in Ephesus. Ephesus, one of the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. Paul started the church, Acts chapter 19. John comes along and plays a key role because so much is now being put in place to advance the cause of Christ and the launch pad. It had started, of course, in Jerusalem, but it then moved to Asia Minor, where these seven churches were located. And these seven churches were being effective as they spread across the world. John was a very effective preacher, a very effective testimony for Jesus Christ. And because of that, Domitian, 
who was the emperor at the time, 95 AD, would put John on an island in the, uh, off the coast of uh, what we know modern-day Turkey in the Aegean Sea, about 45 miles off the coast, and put him there on this little uh, three-mile-wide, six-mile-long island uh, to be under house arrest. Interestingly, Domitian was uh, the brother of the one who had destroyed the temple in 70 AD. General Titus and Domitian themselves were both sons of the emperor at the time of the destruction of the temple. Vespasian, who had moved into position as emperor of Rome after the city had been burned down and he was trying to bring it back. Titus then followed his father as the emperor and then when he died, Domitian took over. And Domitian really hated Christians and because of the testimony of John, he put him on this island imprisoning him. At that point in time, John would receive from the Lord what he wanted him to write down. It's interesting, as you see him on the island there, all of a sudden he heard a voice behind him, and he turned to see what it was. Look at verse 12. I want to introduce a very important thought about uh, what happens in Revelation, verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, that's the phrase that John wrote down for us, and it probably sometimes is difficult to understand. It's an apocalyptic phrase. Apocalyptic comes from that Greek word apocalypsis, which means to reveal, to foretell, to make known, uh, to prophesy. Apocalyptic literature is found in four books of the Bible, Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Revelation. And what happens in these portions of these four books, in this apocalyptic literature, is the Lord will use a symbol to communicate an absolute truth. He will use a symbol, it's a literal symbol, to communicate a literal truth. Now notice with me, let me illustrate. Verse 12 again, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Look at verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Now let me just stop there. There's much more I could deal with, but let me just use those two. Those are two apocalyptic uh, portions of this first chapter of Revelation. If you're going to understand Revelation, you have to approach it knowing there's going to be apocalyptic literature there. There's a phrase that will help you recognize apocalyptic literature used 52 times in the book. It is this, as it were. You'll see that phrase 52 times, as it were. We'll see it in just a moment in chapter 4. As it were. That means it seems to be, but not really is. In other words, a symbol is communicating something. We've got to determine or interpret the symbol. Okay, in verse 12, there's seven golden candlesticks. In verse 16, there's seven stars in the right hand of the one he sees. Look at verse 20. The rule for interpreting apocalyptic literature is keep reading the word of God. Look at verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars, which I saw in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And so that is interpreting what John saw. He saw the seven churches. He saw the angels. And that word is angelos in Greek. It is not talking about a pastor. Sometimes angelos is translated messenger, but most of the time it's angels. So this is dealing with what John saw, the apocalyptic phrases that we have to recognize as we go through the book of Revelation. 
the person of Christ is presented here. Chapter 1 would be a great chapter for you to study if you want to know what the resurrected, glorified, soon coming Christ looks like. But look at verse 18, because after the person we see his power and his testimony of that power. Verse 18. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I had the keys of hell and of death. That's the testimony of Christ. That is the cornerstone of our faith. That is the foundation for Bible prophecy. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had to resurrect, and if he did not resurrect, 1 Corinthians 15 says, we're still living in our sin. He did resurrect. He is alive. Testimony by 500 people at least who saw him after his resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. All of these individuals, every single one of the disciples, except for Judas, every single one of those disciples who saw him in his resurrected body went forth and gave testimony and never recanted on the fact that Christ resurrected from the dead. So again, this is the cornerstone and the foundation for our faith. Now look at verse 19. After we see the authenticity of the person of Christ, we see his authority to be able to tell us exactly what is going to happen in the future. He says, write down the things which thou hast seen, the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. He lays down, chapter 1, the things thou hast seen, chapters 2 and 3, the things which are, and everything after that, chapters 4 through 22, all of those things are going to happen hereafter. In chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, we see the letters to the seven churches. And if you want to have a personal a revival within your own being. Study chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. It's just fantastic, those messages. The last word of Jesus Christ to the church. Now come to chapter 4, and I want to show you that there are three main events throughout the entire book of Revelation. Three main events, and if you will focus in on these and what happens in between these events, you can come to an understanding of how the end times will unfold, and this will give you a grid. I want you to develop a grid within your mind to understand what's going to happen. Chapter 4, and look at verse 1. And after this, now that's not too difficult to understand, after this, after what? At chapter, after chapters 1, 2, and 3. After this, chapter 1, the person of Christ. Chapter 2, we see the letters to the seven churches. Now again, those churches were alive and active in Asia Minor at the time John wrote the book. But they also represent periods of church history. Down through the last 2,000 years, you don't need to look for a line in the sand. This is the end of the church at Ephesus, the beginning of the church of Smyrna, the end of the church of Smyrna, the beginning of the church of Pergamos. But they are characteristics that are applicable to the different periods of church history. And so what he's saying is after church history, after the church is ready and is set to go into the heavenlies, we see depicted here in chapter 4 verse 1, the rapture of the church. And let me illustrate it. Verse 1, chapter 4. After this I looked and behold a door was opened in heaven and I heard, here's that phrase, as it were a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up Hither, and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. This is depicting the rapture of the church. Notice it says, I heard as it were a trumpet talking with me. But I got to tell you something. I started playing trumpet when I was 14 years of age. I do have a box Stradivarius, a handmade trumpet. But that trumpet never talked to me. Never did a trumpet talk to me. 
That's what it's saying here. I heard, as it were, a trumpet talking with me. There's that apocalyptic literature. You remember what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18? Jesus will shout. The archangel will shout. The trump of God will sound. And we'll be caught up to be with him in the air. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 53. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. You see, you use other biblical literature to interpret the apocalyptic phrase. So we see here in chapter 4, verse 1, John, in chapter 4, verse 1, he's on earth. Chapter 4, verse 2, he's in the throne room in the third heaven before the throne of God. He's translated into the heavenlies. Using the principles of hermeneutics, the science of interpreting scripture, we see that Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 depicts the truth found in the Bible about the rapture of the church. That event, the rapture, can happen at any moment, even today. By the way, should the rapture not happen this week, please join us next week as we continue our study on when will the end of the world happen. We'll answer that question with the Word of God, especially the book of Revelation. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. You can go to our website, prophecytoday.com, if you'd like to hear more of these audio series or get commentaries and DVDs. Got to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Kramer with Mission Network News. The United States envoy to the United Nations is in Chad this week to meet refugees and highlight Sudan's worsening crisis. War broke out between the army and paramilitary forces on April 15th, and the fighting hasn't stopped. Those who managed to escape violent hotspots now face starvation and disease. An unfolding word partner will call John says local church planners are meeting physical and spiritual needs. Pray that people can see the hope of Christ through gospel workers. And in 2005, God opened the door for Set Free, formerly Set Free Ministries, to conduct spiritual warfare training in East Africa. That launched a disciple-making movement aimed at the next generation. Thanks to Set Free's new vocational Christian high school, discipleship doesn't have to stop at seventh grade. Each child surrounded by poverty and death can discover God's plan, giving them hope. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries on Ruth Kramer. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. 
Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This is the portion of the program where we take a look at the book. We review some of the stories, the ones that stood out to us during the program this week. Rick, when we listened to Ken Timmerman, what was one story that stood out to you that uh, that just really hit home? Well, Jimmy, I think a lot of what we heard from Ken Timmerman is we just need to be vigilant. There are things going on around in the world, and even right here in our own country, even in our homes, and we just need to be vigilant. We need to be careful. He talked about Iran, and they're looking to export their particular brand of uh, Islam, Islamic extremism here in the United States. And, you know, in the in the age of political correctness, we don't want to ever— uh, come up against people, but we need to realize what's taking place around us and be very careful and be very watchful as we see what's going on in our world, especially in our country. We do see that Iran is moving in and around the world. That's what they would like to do. Islam wants to conquer. Islam means submission. They're trying to make the rest of the world submit to their way of thinking. As Christians, we're not to live in fear of that. We are to live knowing that God will protect us, that he has a plan for us, that God has a plan for the ages. And in that plan, you and I have a role to fill, and that's what we intend to do. And I think when we focus on what Ken says, you're exactly right, Rick. Again, you know, focusing on that, just keeping us aware, we do see that yeah, Satan is trying his hardest in these end of days to, to to really bring about the end of Christianity. He's not going to win, but his all-out war is against God, the angels, and of course man. And that has been since the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. David Dolan helped us understand a few things. What stood out with you and David? Well, Jimmy, it was exciting to hear Dave talk, and he went through the Israeli politics and what's going on in the Saudi normalization talks, and that was all great, but I love to hear the part that when he talked about that archaeological find right down there near the Dead Sea, near Qumran, anybody who's ever been with us to Israel, we... On our desert day, we'll drive down there and we see those caves up on the mountain and they found those uh, Roman swords. Such an interesting find, but it kind of reminded us, as David said, of the Dead Sea Scrolls and how they were found right around the same time that the nation of Israel came into being in 1948. And we talk about it on our trips, Jimmy. It was just like God to allow those to be found then. And it's kind of like his stamp of approval for his people coming back into his land. That's right. You know, we we believe God's word. We believe it. And we take that through faith. Uh, people have tried to discredit that these stories never happened. And it's amazing when archaeology confirms the word of God. Uh, it happened with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I remember hearing the stories of how those were found and how they came to light, confirming that the same Bible that they used, the same Hebrew words, the same Hebrew letters uh, are there on those scrolls that are over 2,000 years old. And now these items that were found in the desert, yes, you and I have been there with Dr. Randall Price, a good friend of our family. As he has been up in those caves, we would be sitting down at Qumran and he would be drinking a cup of coffee all covered in dirt, these archaeologists looking for artifacts. And uh, one of the things that we potentially always say, Rick, 
they have never found the artifacts or the potential wealth that was hidden and the desert when the jews knew that impending doom was coming they hid the the treasures of the temple in the desert and these are treasures that are coming up but it still says to me that those treasures could be out there potentially uh, that wealth that the world comes for in ezekiel chapter 38 winky bedad rick what stood out to you with winky well, Jimmy, as we always talk about, God uses world leaders to uh, to do his will. And we see, we know things are going to take place during the end times. And we see this political situation. And we spent some time talking about the political with Winky. But we look at the political because it is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And many of the things that are taking place, especially including the divide in Israel right now between the religious and what they might want to term the elite there, uh, something that is prophesied in Scripture. But all these things are coming forth, Jimmy, and we have a lot of things to be concerned about from all of our broadcast partners, things that were brought up. But, you know, rather than fear the future, we are called to anticipate the future with joy. Why? In Christ, we will be caught up to meet him and we will always be with the Lord. That's exactly right. We started off the program by saying the best way to overcome fear of the end of days is to be spiritually prepared for it. First and foremost, you must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in order to have eternal life. John three sixteen, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Only through him can you receive forgiveness of sin and have eternity with God. If God is your father, there's really nothing to worry about. That's Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Second, every Christian should live a life worthy of the calling we have in Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 to 3 teaches, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity and the spirit and the bond of peace, knowing Christ and walking in his will, will go a long way towards diminishing the fear of any kind of the future. And then third, Christians are told what will happen in the end. You know, Rick, when we talk about studying Bible prophecy, over one-third of God's Word, there are 1,188 chapters of the Bible. Almost 400 of those chapters pertain some sort of Bible prophecy. And the one that we focus on today in Revelation, as Dr. Jimmy DeYoung taught he talked about the rapture of the church going to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. That passage in the Bible that talks about a future event called the rapture of the church. You're exactly right. We are to anticipate the future with joy. Paul ends up those words saying, Therefore, encourage one another with these words in 1 Thessalonians. And that's what we want to do. We hope that through this program, you will understand the times in which we're living and be prepared, living a pure and productive life in the light of his return. Rick, thank you so much for doing the hard work, asking the questions, and giving people an understanding of where we are in the end of times. As always, Jimmy, we're looking at the gift of prophecy that God has given us, it's so very important to be able to share that with our listeners. Understanding the times in which we're living is so important in the lives of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Folks, the rapture could happen today. Let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.